Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. In June 2011, a couple went out to a friend's house in downtown Vancouver to watch a historic hockey game. By the time the game ended, the city had erupted in violence. Fires burned all around them. The couple attempted to make their way home, but they were knocked down to the ground as chaos reigned around them. At that same moment, photographer Richard Lamb snapped a picture depicting the young woman lying on her back in a riot-torn street between lines of police. She was being consoled by a young man who held her in an embrace while kissing her. The image became synonymous with an event that night, and Sports Illustrated called it the most compelling sports image of the year. But in the midst of all the violence, this gentle gesture is the image the world wanted to see. I'm Erica Vela, a journalist with Global News, and today on What Happened To, I take you back to Game 7 of the 2011 Stanley Cup playoffs. This is the Vancouver Riots. To understand what happened on June 15th, 2011, I gotta take you back a few years to 1994. Almost 5 million Canadians watched at the edge of their seats as the clock wound down on the Canucks' Cinderella season and snuffed out their chances at winning the championship in New York. Ted Field is an assignment editor with Global News in BC, but at the time he was working as a reporter in radio for 980 CKNW Vancouver. That day I was working the desk, so I was reading the news, uh, so I was in the news booth. And again, this was a Game 7. This was uh, a very exciting Game 7 against the New York Rangers. Uh, And then things turned very dark. An estimated 50 to 70,000 individuals converged at the corner of Robson and Thurlow Streets. When the team lost, and it was a a heartbreaking loss after a very, very close game against the New York Rangers, everything just exploded downtown. Uh, Being on the desk, it was interesting because uh, a lot of our shows, like the talk shows, the sports shows, they were talking about, oh, we lost, we lost, we lost. This is really sad. And then all of a sudden we realized the story was changing in terms of what was going on in the streets of downtown Vancouver. Windows started getting smashed and then all hell broke loose uh, through the Robson Street area. uh, Police were called out. Uh, there was a fellow that was hit in the head with a rubber bullet that was shot at people to, by police trying to control the riot situation. And there was over a million dollars in damage. It was a full-on riot, a lot of damage, and uh, it was a very sad situation. Subduing the crowd required over 540 officers of the Vancouver Police Department and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, leading to many arrests and charges. Tear gas wafted through the air, and by the time police got the situation under control, there was an estimated $1.1 million in damages to the downtown core, and up to 200 people were injured. With that horrible night, 17 years earlier in mind, the city prepared for Canucks fans as the team faced the Boston Bruins in Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals at home. There was a buzz and a feeling of positivity and joyfulness. You know, it really was the lifting of a cloud is what it felt like uh, in the city. And there was this feeling of great joy and euphoria that 
that this was just going to be different. It just felt like this team and its destiny and the outcome would be different than it had been in every other year. Chris Galis is an anchor for Global BC, and he says on June 15, 2011, fans from all over the city and beyond flocked to Vancouver's downtown core to witness history unfold. The Canucks had a great chance at the Cup with a stacked team including Ryan Kessler, the Sedin twins, and Roberto Luongo and Nett. Back in 2011, everybody got on board the bandwagon. And of course, the last time it happened, there was a riot, right? It, there was this dark stain on Vancouver's hockey history, and somehow the feeling that year was going to be different. It was going to be vanquishing that demon. By game three, doubt began to creep in. The Bruins shocked Canucks fans, winning with a whopping 8-1 to one lead, proving this wasn't going to be easy for the Canucks. You know, I'm not going to lie. I think after that, that victory by the Bruins, everybody was kind of like, whoa, what just happened? And this air and sense of invulnerability, you know, there was a there was a, a chink in the armor, right? Like it felt like, ooh, that stung. And then how do you bounce back from that, right? Like what kind of toughness and and gutsiness are we going to see out of the team. Chris said as the series progressed, animosity between the two teams built. There were players on the Bruins that just got under your skin, whether you were a player or whether you were uh, a fan. You know, they, it just, they were antagonistic. They were tough. And obviously they were not going down without a fight. The Bruins forced a game seven in Vancouver on June 15th, 2011. And Chris prepared for the big night. We had set up our broadcast location basically at the corner of Georgia and Homer in the parking lot of a budget car rental place. And we had a bit of a we had a bit of a view over the viewing platform. We put a riser up and we we had the crowd in behind us, but they weren't facing our direction. They were facing to the side where the big screen TV was. And it was really at the nexus of a large downtown intersection. City organizers set up a two-block-long fan zone on six-lane Georgia Street near Rogers Arena. Two big-screen TVs were set up for fans, and temporary fences and gates were set up to provide checkpoints where police could control access to the area and check for alcohol, which police generally poured out when it was found. All liquor stores in the area were closed earlier in the day based on recommendations stemming from the 1994 riot. A year earlier, during the 2010 Winter Olympics, similar events had been successful, and crowds had generally been well-behaved in the fan zone for the previous six games, with roughly 70,000 people in attendance. For the final game, an estimated 100,000 people crowded into the area. Chris remembers encountering two young men who were wanting to be part of all the action. I pulled in and I saw two dudes, maybe 20-something, running around in a sort of scrambly way in the downtown parkade. They each were carrying a big gulp cup, and I could see in the 7-Eleven bag a bag of vodka. Man, it's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And here are the first guys I run into when I get down there are obviously ready to get very drunk and, and be a part of this party. Chris walked to Global's broadcasting area. And I joined the crowd and I went through and got to our broadcast location, which was fenced off, big high fences, maybe 10 foot fences around the viewing area. And we're sitting there waiting, you know, we're putting the finishing touches on the show and more and more people start cramming into this area. And it's just, there's nothing on the screen really yet. It's just, it's pre-game, pre-show. We haven't even started broadcasting yet. But the pressure against the fence started pushing the fence, right? We could see people were like, hey, stop pushing, you know. And this might be four o'clock in the afternoon. It's three hours before game time. And already the crowd is getting antsy and feeling stressed. And, and at one point it got so bad, we started hearing people screaming that they were getting crushed against the fence right next to our broadcast location. So we're, we're, we're looking around at, for security. There had been some police in the, in the location just keeping an eye on the crowd. But it got so bad right near our location that we're like, we got to do something. These people are getting crushed against this fence. So we, we found a way to kind of break the, relieve the pressure a little bit. And like 60 people just flushed into our broadcast location, relieving a little bit of this pressure. And, you know, that was an indication that maybe there weren't enough safeguards maybe there wasn't enough security to keep track of what was going on and and keep the crowd from getting too rambunctious ted field was also working that night alongside cameraman carl castleman but they weren't stationed downtown I was out in Surrey because Surrey and other communities serve in the suburbs were sort of encouraging their people, can you, you stay out here? Let's have a gathering out here in, in Surrey or another community and don't go downtown. So I was there at that event in the afternoon and all you could see, and there's a rapid transit, the SkyTrain in Surrey, uh, right where the celebration was supposed to be taking place. And there was a long line of people all taking that SkyTrain from Surrey, the suburbs into downtown Vancouver. And I walked over and started chatting with people about, well, why are you lining up now at three o'clock when the game is much later to go downtown? And, you know, general response, you want to be where the action is. You want to be where the excitement is in downtown Vancouver. But one fellow, he was a guy, I think he was in his 30s and he had a a young son with him. And he, he actually told me, I'm taking my son down to see the riot. I was involved in the previous riot and I'm taking my son down to see it. With that, the puck dropped and the historic game was on. Here's Chris Galis. After the first period, there was a hum in the crowd. And I remember feeling like this is, they are not happy. And the, the, the weird thing that we noticed was that police in their, in their fluorescent vests had always been visible throughout the lead up to the game and during the first little bit of the game. And I can't remember specifically it was in that first period break or not. But when we started to feel this hum of dissatisfaction in the crowd, we looked out, people were starting to climb the light standards. 
we saw none of the fluorescent vests. It's like every police officer and security guard that was down there felt the same thing and pulled back and disappeared. The game was a battle between goaltenders, two gladiators on net. Tim Thomas made 37 saves and Roberto Luongo stopped 17 out of 20 shots. Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand each scored two goals as Boston shut out Vancouver 4-0 to win the Stanley Cup. For the first time in 39 years, the Boston Bruins have won the Stanley Cup. And they pour on to celebrate with Tim Thomas, their heroic goaltender. It was a disaster. It You know, you laugh about it now, but I mean... You you gotta you gotta think like all of the buildup for nearly five decades. You know we felt so good about it that we put together these huge block parties, watch parties, to be able to see the games, and everybody gathered downtown. And the feeling was that there's no we can't lose. There's no way we can lose. And then for the Bruins to run up, what was it? Four goals. It was like four nothing before you knew it in that game. And the feeling very quickly after the first couple of goals, you could just feel everything changed, seemed to change in a moment. And the vibe that half an hour before was joyful and exuberant turned dark and foreboding. Chris Galis was near the corner of West Georgia and Homer Street after the live broadcast. Why were they not dispersing? Like, why are you not going home? And and people were like, you know, they wanted to be a part of it. And for better or worse, that was the mentality of, of people down there. I was still at this point in our fenced broadcast area. We made the editorial decision that at least one crew should stay back there in case something crazy happened. We could always have a safe and stable broadcast area. But at one point, my photographer and I got up on a big ladder. So Tony's up on a big ladder, sort of shooting over the top of the fence at the crowd that is now jammed into this area. The fire is burning down there. All of the porta potties are being tipped over right here. And the crowd has gone over to the Bank of Montreal building and taken one of the stanchions or barriers that had been used for crowd control earlier and and was using it as a battering ram to break all of these massive plate glass windows at the BMO Bank. And like the sound echoed through the canyon of downtown. And when we could see what was happening, we're like, This is crazy. They're breaking these massive panes of glass. Well, now people see what's going on over the BMO and they turn on the budget rental car place where we are stationed. And the people inside are fleeing. They take the barriers and they bash out all the windows of the budget rental car place. And and we all feared feared for our safety. I do get emotional about it. By 7.30 p.m., rioters had begun vandalizing the city. 
Ted Field and Carl Castleman were quickly reassigned. They left Surrey and made their way downtown, but on the drive over, they noticed a dark cloud looming over the city. From the distance, you can see smoke rising, cars being set on fire. There was a parkade near the Hudson's Bay building where multiple cars were set on fire, and you just sort of go, oh, Lord, where are we going into? And we ended up just parking about a block or two away because you're, you're listening. You know where the action is. It's on Granville Street. We park about a block away, get the camera out of the truck. We look at each other and go, here we go. Ted and Carl walked into the busy street and could see the sting of defeat on the faces of fans and could also see the anger which was about to bubble over. There was a large crowd and there was a vehicle that had been damaged. I can't remember if it was on the side or upside down. And there was a large crowd, hundreds of people. And Carl and I walk and he's obviously the big TV camera and I'm right behind him. Carl Castleman was capturing the scene on his camera. Surreal is the only way to describe it. So worked our way through the crowd a bit to see, you know, get closer in what was going on. And uh, I started to record a little bit. and. Uh, uh, after a few minutes, I noticed that someone was stuffing rags, cloth, whatever, into the uh, gas tank, the filler tank of the overturned vehicle. So it took me a couple of moments because you're, as you're looking through the eyepiece, you kind of, that's your world. And you, you kind of focus in on exposure, focus, what do you see in the picture framing? But then part of my brain went click, what the hell? That's, you can't like that. There's, there's fumes. I mean, this, this, that could be, the outcome could be very bad. Um, an explosion. So uh, that's when I, I kind of yelled out, oh, my God, and became a person and kind of pushed the person aside a bit and said, you know, that's a, that could be a bomb. You guys are crazy. Ted says in an instant, the crowd directed their rage at them. There were quite a few people and they were grabbing for the camera, grabbing for the lens, pushing and shoving. And you felt, again, just two people against a mob. That's what it felt like. And uh, and that was the struggle where you're just, again, you're, you're like Carl's fighting back. I'm trying to watch his back. That's the other thing, too, with the cameraman. You're focused on the front. I'm sort of looking around for things coming at us or people coming at us. Carl was still holding his camera over his shoulder, which created a large blind spot on his right side, and he was in a vulnerable position. Suddenly, he heard commotion around him. I kind of looked over to see Ted getting pushed down. And then, again, my memories of something, and then I had a, someone swung and hit me on my face, and uh, the, the camera kind of went off and down. The viewfinder broke off. The, the microphone disappeared. And uh, I felt a bit of a stinging in my jaw. And so that's when I looked over at Ted. And I said, we got to get out of here right now. This is crazy. So we started to run away from the crowd. And uh, we were followed by a few people. Uh, a couple of guys in particular. One kind of jumped in front and said, you're got no going anywhere. At that moment, as you're running away, it was uh, fight or flight. And it was just get out of there because it, uh, uh, it, was, it was scary as hell. Ted and Carl were left in absolute disbelief over what happened. How do you how do you go from celebration to destruction? And as we walked down the street to see the crowds, it it was obvious things had gone very straight, and it wasn't your town anymore. It wasn't a city where uh, literally you felt unsafe all around. 
Windows were smashed, vehicles burned, and for five hours, rioters attempted to destroy Vancouver's downtown core. Chris Galis recalls walking through the streets, being overwhelmed with what he saw. I think just the amount of garbage that was left over, the number of people who were still there milling around being dispersed by by the riot police at 11 o'clock at night. You know, we're, we're talking hours after it started and that they were continuing to, to cause chaos and run around and smash windows. I mean, this is a hockey game, right? This isn't fighting for democracy, right? Fighting against tyranny. This is the result of a hockey game. You know, it was just, it was just bizarre. Just so much anger and pent up frustration. And I, I, I am still trying to figure out where that came from and how it got so quickly out of control. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't know what, what happened with the mob mentality there, but it was shocking, striking, and embarrassing to see what happened. 112 businesses were damaged. 122 vehicles were either destroyed or defaced. There were 52 reported assaults against police, emergency personnel, and people. At the corner of Granville and Georgia, which is the heart of Vancouver's downtown core, a London drugs pharmacy was targeted by rioters. It had been open during the game, but employees closed the store early as rioters took to the streets. It didn't stop them. People broke into the store, stole items off the shelves. The financial loss was pegged at $140,000 for repairs and $760,000 in stolen or damaged merchandise. Rioters then turned their attention to a nearby historic building housing the Hudson Bay store. Vehicles outside the department store were set on fire and there was $432,000 worth of stolen property and $856,000 of physical damage to the store and merchandise. A good Samaritan, Robert Mackay, jumped in to try and stop the violence, but he was bloodied and beaten when he was swarmed by 12 rioters. He spoke with journalists after the attack. There was a fellow who picked up a pole and lunged at me with the pole, at which point I grabbed onto the pole and all I was meaning to do was push everyone back. Right, and uh, just to get them away from the windows and from myself. Uh, not really understanding that I was leaving myself vulnerable at that point. I, I was another disgust of, of what happened. It was, um, it was shameful. It was shameful for the city and, and for the country. Chris Galis said it was a dark day for people who had called Vancouver home. It was anarchy, chaos, a little version of the apocalypse. You know, you get a glimpse of horrible human behavior that defies logic and explanation. It was a mob mentality that just overtook. And yet the most striking thing to me was there was only smiles on the faces of people taking part, right? It was joyful. They were joyfully tearing the city apart. 
Although residents were still reeling from what unfolded in the city the night before, on June 16th, they banded together to help restore the downtown core. The day after the riot, with so much broken glass down there, the story of of people grabbing their dustpans and brooms and garbage bags and going down and trying to clean up what happened to the Hudson's Bay store, right? Like that is an iconic downtown building, um, you know, downtown merchant in most Canadian cities. And to see the, the amount of damage to it was heartbreaking because it's a, it's a beautiful old historic building. And so people got down there with their with their brooms and their dustpans, and they cleaned up, they volunteered. There was this army of volunteers that moved down there to help clean up, clean up. And that was heartwarming to see. Ted Field said smashed windows were boarded up and people covered them with messages of love and support. And I get a bit of goosebumps thinking about it at the time where they came down and started decorating and, and coloring and making it beautiful and saying, you know, and helping. And to be honest, people just coming down to help clean up, just average people, because they were so offended and angered by what they saw the night before. So that was the first thing. And that was like, again, maybe a part of the healing process that people wanted to express their anger of what happened, but also physically do something to try and clean it up. In the days that followed the riot, BC's premier came out with a very pointed message to rioters. And we are going to find you, we are going to charge you, and we are going to prosecute you to the full extent of the law. And as the community came together to clean up, questions swirled and many wondered, how could something like this have happened again? In the months after the riot, there were a number of inquiries and reviews, including an independent review chaired by the former Vancouver Olympic Committee head, John Furlong, and Douglas J. Keefe, a former deputy justice minister. It was called The Night the City Became a Stadium. John Furlong spoke with reporters the day the report was released. The riot was caused by thugs and villains and people who cheered them on. And it was left to everybody else to try to manage and bring that evening to, a, to the safest conclusion uh, it possi- they possibly could. It is our opinion, and we've stated it in the report, that um, a huge factor in what happened that day was alcohol. And there was free-flowing alcohol pretty well all day, and uh, it had an enormous impact on the atmosphere and the attitude and the behavior of people from fairly early on and right to the end of the day. The report is nearly 400 pages long, and it says the night of Game 7, quote, there were too many people, not too few police. No plausible number of police could have prevented trouble, igniting in the kind of congestion we saw on Vancouver streets that night, unquote. Previous playoff games ran smoothly, and to prepare, more officers were assigned to cover Game 7, according to the report. There were 446 police, not counting the regular downtown patrol, and the total number eventually reached 928 officers. But there was an unprecedented amount of people, an estimated 155,000 people. And to put that into context, that's more than three times the capacity of the Rogers Centre in Toronto crammed into Vancouver's downtown core. People flocked downtown early, and many were drunk when they arrived or drank openly after they got there. 
The report said when things began to deteriorate, police made the decision to get riot gear. While it may have been the right move, it said, quote, the transition was slow due to communication problems and location of the riot equipment in packed streets. The riot was really a series of running hotspots over a large area. Better public order planning and practice for large regional events is required. Essentially, the city core became a stadium holding 155,000 people, but without resilient infrastructure, time, or capacity to manage the crowd, unquote. The report had 53 recommendations for future events, including joint crowd control training exercises for police, fire, and paramedics, and that police would use communication tools earlier to help set the tone, inform, and provide direction to the crowd. It also suggested dampening the sale of alcohol for regional events, and the RCMP Tactical Troop and Vancouver Police Public Order Unit should train together and develop common tactics they can use as a unit during joint operations. There were 155,000 people on the streets of Vancouver on the night of the riot, and the mayor said they were going to prosecute those responsible. Ted Field said investigators had new tools at their disposal. In 2011, I don't think people realized the impact of social media um, that, you know, we saw it. People were doing crazy things, setting fire to vehicles, smashing windows, posing while doing this for cameras and posting them. As a matter of fact, in the days later, uh, we had either the social media images that people were posting of themselves doing crazy things or very good surveillance video. And this was the, again, where you suddenly found out how good surveillance video can be at source in terms of identifying people. But I think at that stage, whether it be uh, mob mentality or people just being uh, impaired with alcohol or drugs or whatever, or whatever it is, uh, there was that level of, I dare say, innocence that this could all come back and bite you in the butt because you can be uh, easily identifiable through pictures being posted on social media or surveillance video. Vancouver's police chief at the time, Jim Chu, made an appeal to the public. And there's tremendous numbers of people out there with recordings and pictures, and they've already said, we want to come forward, we want to help the police. And so we're asking the public to do that. The Vancouver police asked for video and pictures. And like I say, they essentially had to hire an entire crew to deal with hundreds of hours of video, probably thousands of hours of video, but I think they, they all total had over a million images. And they went and it took a long time to dutifully go through and find people. And they would put out, these are the people we're looking for that were specifically involved in serious incidents damage. Vancouver police assembled the integrated riot investigation team and its mandate was to identify and charge individuals participating in the riot and committing other criminal acts. A report from BC's prosecution service on the riot said members from the IRIT identified, interviewed, and took statements from over 2,200 victims, witnesses, property owners, and employees, and they identified 297 riot events on June 15th, including 26 arsons, 193 mischiefs, and damage to property, 26 break-and-enters, and 52 assaults. The IRIT also launched a website and posted photographs or video stills, and the public was able to look at those images and post information to help identify the suspects. Eventually, 912 charges were laid against 300 alleged rioters. Of the 300, 
246 were adults and 54 were youths. In the weeks following the riot, the criminal justice branch assembled a riot prosecution team. The majority of the people charged pleaded guilty. That was a total of 284 people. Ten people chose to go to trial, and nine were convicted. The report said the Crown entered a stay of proceedings, terminating the prosecution against six of the accused. Ted Field and Carl Castleman found out that the man that assaulted them the night of the riots was among the 300 people facing charges. A Crown prosecutor called me some months later, and, and some time afterwards, and said that uh, Carl Castleman just wanted to identify me and confirm what they had seen on video. And this goes back to what had happened, is as, as they um, did, as, as they started to go through the hours and hours of social postings of, of what happened, they saw this happen. And through other stuff, they were able to, I, I guess they identified the guy. Kurt Sikora was charged with taking part in a riot and mischief and was sentenced to 30 days in jail to be served on weekends, 75 days of community service, and one year of probation. During the pre-sentencing, Provincial Court Judge Reg Harris said he had a problem with the treatment of media in this case. They are the eyes and ears of society. The judge said, quote, they are a benefit to society and they should have protection. And if they are harmed, there should be consequences. Over 500 court days were required to complete the trials and sentencing hearings. It was a pricey endeavor, too. It cost taxpayers nearly $5 million, according to BC's prosecution service. For Carl Castleman, June 15, 2011, is a day he won't soon forget. It was, um, it was a, a watershed moment. And I've been to other, you know, I went to 9-11, a few months after 9-11. We went down for the uh, L.A trial of O.J. Simpson and saw the, the riots afterwards and stuff. So I'm not, I'm not brand new to it, but it definitely was to have it in your town was a watershed moment uh, in your career, for sure. It's been 12 years since the Vancouver riots and the Canucks haven't made it to the finals since 2011. Ted hopes that if and when it does happen, fans will have learned from that fateful Game 7. And I think the, the the assumption we have to learn from history. That was what really sort of annoyed me about the 2011 riot to the the earlier riot. And, and you can't jump to a conclusion that well, the city has changed, the world has changed, we're a better place. Um, you you have to think that things can happen, and dark things can happen. Sadly, you know, every time we seem to see one of these things, it can turn negative. I don't know why Vancouver <laughs> has this bit of an issue surrounding it, but. Uh, maybe, you know, the saddest thing is maybe one day the Canucks will be back and hopefully we'll learn from those past mistakes and, you know, we'll see again that maybe we've grown up. Now, I couldn't end the story on the Vancouver riots without giving you an update on the kissing couple that were featured in the most compelling sports image of the year. Australian Scott Jones and Canadian Alex Thomas are still together. And they have a copy of that photo at home in Perth, Australia, where they're raising a family together.
Global News, What Happened To, is written and produced by me with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kafour and Rob Johnson. Also, a special thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist with Global News. I also want to give out a special thanks to Regan Goodale, our intern. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories, so if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening. That's the end of season three. I'll be taking some time off for maternity leave, but I'll be back in the future with more great stories. We'll see you soon.